Now, the second battle that we're now fighting is whether or not we will have the right to use the terms to decide how our movement is going to go. They don't want us to use black power. I got news for them. What up, what up, what up, what up? Peace. You are here once again with Sonny Ture and Arcadia J. And this is the Fire This Time podcast. Yes, indeed. We're here episode five. We always name these podcasts after, so we ain't got no name for you just yet. <laughs> but uh, Aki, go ahead and uh, talk to the people real quick. You know, go on and welcome the people, bro. Well, you know what I'm saying? I like to say welcome to the fifth podcast. We're glad to have y'all back with us again and to be able to try to bring this to you again. Um, I would definitely like to tell you to support us, um, you know, um, and share the show. Um, you can do it via the Fire This Time of um Twitter page if you want to or you can leave it in the comments. We also like you to throw some suggestions of some shows that you may have or topics you want us to carry out or something like that. We're trying to make this thing a little expansive and get it out there. You can also look for us um, on um, the MXGM Champagne Urbana you know, web, I mean uh, Facebook page and um, just be sure to do that, you know. We'll be letting you know again. So, um, Yes, uh, who you just heard opening up. I don't know if we mentioned it, uh, but uh, that was Kwame Ture. Today is Kwame Ture's birthday. Uh, right? Ashe. Ashe, June 29th. And uh, we're also celebrating, uh, we're, we're going to talk more about Kwame Ture later this episode, but we're also celebrating somebody else. We're celebrating Nihanda Abiodon, uh, and uh, she was a former member of uh, MXGM in Napo who uh, passed, I think, sometime last year. And uh, today's her birthday, and she was, uh, you know, active in the New African Liberation Movement. What what else you know about? Uh, uh, in Pacific, you know, um, the, she's most known for being an um, a exile in Cuba. Um, she was accused of uh, aiding and assisting in the, um, you know, uh, the escape of Saddam Shakur. So she had to flee the country. She lived in exile in Cuba. Um, she, of course, she was a founder member of MXGM and Napo. Um, you know, a total um, stalwart, big into the uh, hip-hop community and bringing that to the Latin community. She was also a firm African womanist. Um, there's so many things we can talk about the sister. I always would tell people to get on your phones and Google in Nahanda Abiodun. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't know how to spell that, that's N-E-H-A-N-D-A-A-B-I-O-D-U-N. Mm-hmm. She got it, you know. She got an original name. Sometimes, you know, that get tricky on you. So yeah, if you uh, if you find in your heart that you love and support Asada Shakur, who's still with us in exile in Cuba, you know, let's make sure that we lift up the people that uh, sacrificed and uh, you know supported uh, Asada's cause and the New African Liberation cause. We have to lift up these names, lift up this legacy, lift up this tradition, and uh, yeah, that's what uh, that's that's a big part of what Fire This Time is about. So let's keep it moving, our key. Uh, so what, what are we going to talk about today, man? Today we're going to talk about black-on-black black crime. Mm. We're going to get into it on mm. that right now. It's been a little controversial subject, you know, going on. There's been some some people commenting on things and speaking on things. And, and you know, it's just, you know, it brings up a lot of different things in the conversation. Um, one of the things, you know, we can start off with is this, you know, Asking a general question, you know, I asked my man right here, Sonny. You know, what do you think some of the causes of it, black on black crime, is? I mean, the name, the biggest cause, first of all, is just you know our oppression by white supremacy and capitalism. 
you know, and just the situation that puts our communities under, mm-hmm. uh, how, how it squeezes uh, families, individuals, and communities, uh, you know, and puts, puts our people into situations, you know, where um, we harm each other or, you know, where that harm reinscripts new, new harm or cycles of harm, um, whether it be burglary, you know, murder, sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the cause of it, you know, I look first to our, our oppressor, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there, there's, um, yeah, yeah, I'll, start, I'll leave it there. He <laughs> you said you're going to run with that one. That's what's up. That's what's up. Well, everything, I, everything in that sound right to me. Um, for me, you know, it's the same thing. It, it, it's a, it's something that's coming from the, uh, uh, stemming from the, the oppression that the, you know, the enemy has put on us. And so, like, um, you know, even in thinking about it, um, the conditions that produce, the conditions that was produced by the enemy here in America for the black man in America, um, those conditions produces the mentality that he wants. And the mentality that he wants is that uh, only the strongest survive. Dog eat dog. You know, that's capitalism. And capitalism, it always has to be somebody climbing over the top, you know, trying to get up. It's always a race to get to the top or to become successful. But then what happens when you put that in a place with an environment that you've altered and then put no resources there? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you de- you deny resources and keep resources that even sometimes is produced, whether it's the labor, whether it's the people, you know, what I'm saying like you right. This, he the oppression that he gives us, you know, what I'm saying produces this. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, the, the big thing is that it's always going to come down to him when you talk about black on black crime. He the hidden hand. Mm hmm. But see me, I you know I had a conversation with somebody and they was telling me literally that they didn't think black 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 on black crime existed. What they thought mean? it was a myth. A myth. Yeah. How how what you mean a myth? Like a myth, like it didn't exist. Like 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 that, you know, uh that they I, I think sometimes they trying to use the same perspective we just gave mm. but then saying that it's a myth because it's not us really committing the crime on us. I, okay, I, I think I feel what you're saying. I, I do kind of get that feeling. That's just what I got from it. I, yeah. I may be off, but that's so, what I got. That's a response to black-on-black crime being used as a deflection uh, when you know we raise up the call against our uh, murder by police or by white supremacists, right? Like, yeah, I guess, right, yeah, yeah. Right, so, so when we mobilize, when we have movements or moments that spark up, in resistance to police brutality or police murder of our people. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of people say, well, y'all need to be worried about black-on-black crime. And then I, I guess this is a response, right? Well, black-on-black crime is a myth. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because uh, all, you know, most violence is intraracial. You know, yeah. I guess that's, you know, uh, a response I hear a lot. You know, um, but for me, when I hear, you know, hearing that, the idea that black-on-black crime is a myth, it sounds to me to be somewhat disconnected from the conversation, the rhetoric, the discourse 
in our communities it's, about violence. You know what I'm saying? Because it, I, I, I can't imagine going to my hometown, Evansville, Indiana, where we had three or four unsolved murders within the black community in the past few months. And, uh, you know, trying to tell people that black on black crime is a myth. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, I'll pass it back to you, Aki. You know, I, I mean, I, 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 I co-sign all of that. Um, you know, when I heard it, I, the first thing I thought is like, you couldn't be living amongst niggas. Hmm. And it's just sad to say, you know, part of my French people. But um, in the hood, um, I don't know a black person I could walk up to right now. And tell them that black on black crime don't exist. And they believe me. You know, um, I don't know. When I think about all the black people, and I, I, I've known quite a few black people that have passed from crime, most cases murder. Um, if I ask all of them, and I'm thinking off the top of my head, None of them was killed by a white man. None of them was killed by a police officer. You know, um, I understand the root cause um, of black-on-black crime, but I'd be a fool to say that black-on-black crime doesn't exist. And I'd be a fool to say that it's damn sure a myth. Um, A myth meaning that it don't exist. And so I don't even have to use... um, we don't even have to use no data on this. I don't have to quote no numbers on this or none of that. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is that black folks know that black on black crime exists. In the hood, we know that black black on black crime exists. And we need to address it more. We definitely do. Um, um, we need to tackle that just as hard as I think as us being oppressed by, you know, the external forces. You know, we need to address the internal conflicts, but it's going to take massive organization and the willing for us to confront and, and, and take on things that we may not right now, at, right at this point, we may deem totally out of line. So now, you know, we can we can we can move on a little bit, you know what I'm saying? And, and uh, check out with people, you know what I'm saying, some of the things that's been going on in the present day, you know, with a lot of little celebrities and stuff, you know, they've been acting a little wild and saying a little couple of things, you know, about black-on-black crime. You got Lil Wayne out here and Trina in the news and shit, and, Mm-mm. you know, it's, it's it's going down, you know. But I don't want to speak, you know, uh, for myself. So uh, which one we going to roll up first? Man, let's play this Lil Wayne first. Uh, this is uh, a conversation he's having with Fat Joe. I believe on some type of platform Flat, uh, Fat Joe got oh, wow. So uh, yeah Lil Wayne comments on George Floyd And the protests surrounding that So let's see what they got to say bro. So you have a unique perspective what, what do you think about what's going on right now With this cop On Big George stepping on his neck and all that I think it's a I think when we see these situations, I think we also have to understand that we have to we have to get very specific. We have to get so specific, and what I mean by that, we have to we have to stop we have to stop viewing it from with such a broad view. Meaning, we have to stop put, placing the blame on the whole the whole force and the whole everybody of such a certain certain race or everybody with a badge. And we have to actually we have to get get into who that person is and 
if we want to place the blame on anybody, it, it should be ourselves for not doing more than what we think we're doing. Yeah, I mean, we're leaving it at a, we, the, the reason why people always ask me, like, why you don't say this? Why you don't do that? Is because a lot, I mean, what else am I going to do after that? Really, we, we, some, some people put a tweet out and they think that's, they think they did something. That some people wear a shirt, they think they did something. I mean, what you going to do after that? Did, did you actually help the person? Did you actually help the family? Did you actually go out there and do something? So if I ain't about to do all that, then I ain't about to do nothing. I pray for you. Mm. Wow. A lot to say about that, Aki. There's a lot to say about them comments. Yeah, I got all types of... Because, you know, the, the part at the end, I, I agree with a lot of that. But, you know, his kind of refusal to see uh, the law enforcement and its racist practices in a systemic way. You know what I'm saying? He wants to individualize. We need to see what this individual cop was like. Um, you know, I, I definitely don't agree with those stances at all. And or or the idea that George Floyd's death is our fault or that that the oppression that law enforcement hand out to us is our fault. Of course, I don't. Uh, that's, you know, this uh, nigga says, pardon me. Go ahead. This bro. man saying that it's our fault because we ain't do enough. So you blame the people that's getting shot? That's some other shit right there, Aki. Mm. You know, uh, you know, it's it's it's, it's it's he from he from New Orleans. He like from the straight hood. Like he get down where he was from. How do you how do you escape from that? Like how do you how do you detach yourself from that? The the fact that you can't see that, um, you know. You, I, how, how can't you see that this was taking place with this? You know, one of the things I first of all got to say is that the reason why black black people have never been allowed to form the communities and the institutions unhalted and uninterrupted mm -hmm. in their community to prevent this from happening. Black people have never had the stable communities and never been allowed to produce those stable communities in America. That could have properly, and, 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 and institutions that could have prevented this right here, you know. Um, so to hear him make that, that means he totally lacks um, a historical, uh, you know, he, actually, he, he lacks a lot of the knowledge of our history mm. here in America. You know, you, you don't know nothing. You obviously don't know nothing about niggas. Yeah, and, it's <laughs> and, it, and it seems supported by this idea. Well, one is... Is supported one by an ignorance of the colonial situation. You know what I'm saying? And of course, that would provide a little bit more of a of a of a better position for him on you know what law enforcement is doing to us. You know, um, yeah, I feel like he he's totally missing that in regards to uh, like uh, we're a colonized people. You know, this idea that if we act right. And if we just, you know, pull ourselves up that we can integrate into this society. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it seems like there's some a lot of pessimism in this view. Yeah. And and how he's trying to approach, you know, these these type of uh, issues. I mean, I say this. One thing I did agree with was this. If you ain't going to really go out there and do nothing, then shut up. Mm. That means he should have been making this comment now except to explain that's why he ain't saying nothing. <laughs> and, you know... 
we got to put this also in light, you know what I'm saying, of past comments he made. You know what I'm saying? He he, he made comments before that racism yeah. didn't exist. Yeah. You know yeah, what I'm saying? I, yeah, I remember that. And so... Um, why don't we keep it moving? You know what I'm saying? We 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 got Lil Wayne on here, uh, but you know Trina also made some recent comments. So let, let's bring Trina into the fold and what maybe Trina just say it. You know what I'm saying? Let, let's see what she gotta say. So this is a uh, YouTube video published on um, Hip Hollywood uh, Instagram page. So let's run it back, see what they gotta say. Entered the chat. And now the baddest bitch is being canceled over her tragic take on protesting. I have so much to say, Miami. I am spied up. I am pissed off and I am ready today. While chatting with Trick Daddy on 99 Jams Radio, the Miami rapper went off, venting about curfews and the need to implement them earlier. They need to make the curfew at 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. That's how I feel. No. Keep everybody off the street, these animals off the streets that are running around in Miami-Dade County acting like they have escaped from a zoo. Lock them up at 5 p.m. so the streets can be nice and clean. That's how I feel. Of course, the statement shocked Trick Daddy, who tried to explain the need to let protesters let their voices be heard. But Trina was undeterred. She accused most of the protesters of doing it for the wrong reasons and revealed why she's not scared of the police. All y'all fake for the protests and the fake. Oh, we so concerned about George Floyd. Half of y'all are marching. I'm not even caring about this man. People are just doing First maliciously. All, when the police get behind you and the red and blue lights come on, you're not supposed to be scared. You're not supposed to be scared. I'm never scared. I have my license and registration and insurance. I'm not scared. I know my rights. Right. So let's just pause it right there and go in and get into it. Um, one, you know, Trina definitely shows a certain gender and class privilege and you know getting pulled over by the police and feeling safe hmm. uh you know because you have your license and registration you know that that definitely shows a lack of contact with um the the i, I guess maybe some distance between her and that contact that she may be experienced at a different time of her life mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying because uh of, of course, niggas is going to fear the police. You know what I'm saying? That That's going to remain until we free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- w- what do you think, Aki? I go back down to that. It don't even sound like... Like, for her to come from... She come from the hood. Mm-hmm. You know, she from the same stock and pedigree as us. You know, far as uh, and her lineage here in America. Um, that I know of. Total distance from that, you know. She probably been she probably been in the money, you know, probably now for about what, 15, 18 years. You sitting on millions. That takes it to a whole nother level, you know. Now you talking about class. You know, and she calling these people animals. You know, that's okay, what I'm saying. Class. I, yeah, I, I definitely can't get with that language. If you were still trapping in the hood. Mm-hmm. But as far as what some of what she said, as far as a lot of the people marching don't really care about George Floyd, and I, I think she's kind of getting at the idea that a lot of people are using black male death, you know, for their own devices, mm-hmm. for their own agenda, and not really caring about. The uh, the you know the black male victim or victims on, you know that on different le- on, on 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 various different type of levels too, um, you know even you know from um a level of um people, foreign f- foreign ideologies, 
and theories coming into it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We getting, you know, now they jumping, you getting people that's coming in it from all different avenues. And it sort of confuses, you know, the real core and the, and the path to it. I mean, that's just be real. Um, you calling these people animals, you know, um, and I listened to the full interview, mm. you know, and so it was some personal stuff in there too. Mm-hmm. You know, she got a brother. Mm-hmm. You know, she mentioned her brother, and her brother was mad, murdered by a black man. Mm-hmm. You know, and that go to the whole thing we were talking about earlier when people talking about black on black crime don't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and she laid she mentioned in there that we don't, uh, you know, protest as hard for the black on black crime. I, I can agree with that. On that, well, we should go harder for that, you know. Um, but uh, the fact that you know, she, she, you know, she feels that uh, people are not really concerned. I, I can see a little bit of that too. There's no stability in the ghetto, you know what I'm saying? There's no stability in the hood like that. The, they robbed us of our stability. You see, we supposed to be stable right now. The same way you see stability in white community, you you been here. There's some of us that's been in America longer than some white people that's been in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, facts. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You we and as a group, we've been here to some extent. When the white man came, we came with him. Mm-hmm. You know, I know people. You know, just you know, we got some African presence here before that, but I'm talking about you know this specific subject right here. But yeah, we came with him. We was here. We were slaves on the first ship. You know what I'm saying? They tried to enslave the natives too, but it was us, them, and the natives. Mm-hmm. That was only three people here. You know, if anybody in the country is supposed to be stable, it's supposed to be us and, and the indigenous peoples of this country. You know, they took that stability and robbed us of that. Mm-hmm. So the institutions that we would produce in our community, the things that prevent the crime, when you're in a stable community, what reason are you going to have to rob somebody? You know, if you're in a stable community, what reason are you going to have to, uh, you know, murder somebody, you know what I'm saying, especially over what they got, or jealousy or envy and stuff like that? You wouldn't have no reason to do all of that stuff when you have stable communities. When you look at stable communities, you don't see the level of crime that you see in the black community. So it's like they... That's the attack. That's the oppression that we under. They they put us in that, and then they created the environment. And like I said earlier, they gave us the survival of the fittest. You know that come out of social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. They put us in situations like that. Take out the resources, produce an environment where everybody trying to eat up in it, and everybody trying to get it. So even though that black man right there is just as poor as you, he from another street block, and damn it. You like what he got, and you want it. Mm-hmm. If it ain't that, it's you see the dude that's doing the business and he making the money in the hood and things of that such nature. You want to get to that position right there because you want to floss and ride in cars like him. There's a mentality that's produced from the environment that we in. You know, and we if we taking it back to history, bro, just think about slavery. And you you might have mentioned some of it, bro, but just think about that slave master putting that whip in a black man's hand. Mm-hmm. And saying you gonna be my whip hand basically, and whip these other slaves, mm. or you and your family not eating, y'all gonna die, perish, be beat, not starve, whatever. Yeah, you know, we'll beat saying? you till you submit. So think about that direct, you know, type of uh, mm-hmm. type of uh, white puppetry 
you know, undergirding this black on black violence. Yeah. It's just think about how that puppetry maybe more indirect now, mm-hmm. but uh, still direct in some ways too. But uh, you know, it, yeah, it, it always turns back to that crack. Yeah, yeah, it gets back to him. You know, the institution that he set up is like a well-oiled machine that works on his own, and the fuel is black folk. <laughs> That's the fuel of it. That's what make it go. You know what I'm saying? And and he set it up in a way to where the ghetto is self-producing. The hood is self-producing. Meaning that I'm going to put you in it. I'm going to create this environment for you. I'm going to deprive you of these resources. And then I'm going to put you in that situation. I'm going to do it so long that in order you'll never be able to get to that level of having stab- stable communities because you're so far back in the hole. Sidebar, reparations call. Back on the subject. But, you know what I'm saying, they'll put you in that hole, and so you can't, you know, the community as a whole can't can't even get up out of it. You know? So it's like the, the, the means for us to step over this is one we have to work. We, you got Like you said, you have the external and the internal conversation. Well, it's like I look at it like an external revolution and an internal revolution. Mm-hmm. A revolution has to take place within the black community. That's a culture revolution mm-hmm. to change the values and the morals of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, the way and, we and, view things. And how do we do that? Are we going to do that through hashtags? Are nah. we, we going to do that through mentioning niggas on Twitter? Nah, you got to do that through establishing institutions in the community. Um, we, I think that we have to sometimes, I think we can look back and get ideas from even, you know, maybe even traditional African culture mm-hmm. in the sense of having a, 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 a rites of passage groups or boys groups and, sister, and, and, and girl groups where we socialize the children into a freedom type. You know, um, um, you, you, the dictates and the norms, how to treat another black man, how to treat a black woman, how to respect a black woman, how to, like, mm. I think we need something that's a cultural apparatus in the community, institutionalized. And what's holding back the creation of those institutions? Primarily, I would say, it's our misleadership. Yes, that too. It's our misleadership that's that's misdirecting our energies away from those more righteous causes into the fucking Democratic Party or other type of liberal reformism uh, where we're just completely blinded in in those alleyways instead of seeing the full breadth of what our politics need to be. But that's because they're dealing with the class. That go back to the class earlier. Exactly. So we got to bring up Brother Gus's argument about uh, how central intra-racial, intra-communal class warfare needs to be within our politics. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We have to, as a black working class, you know, see the black petty bourgeois, the black middle class as a neo-colonial force. Yeah. You know, this gets into uh, France Fanon. Well, I mean, with, uh, some people even know it as the black petty bourgeoisie mm-hmm. or the black bourgeoisie. Right. Many names. Yeah, there's many names. The high elite, the, uh, the rich folks, uh, you know, that right there is a that's a that's a warfare that is is so confusing mm-hmm. to black people because it's usually waged. The the culprits in the warfare, the two parties, look alike. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? They look alike and they come from the same background. Exactly. In most cases. So, um, 
and not always from the same background. And two, I split it in two groups mm. because you can put one half of that in a black celebrity mm-hmm. and then black politicians. Also, maybe a, another split could be conscious traitors. That too. And coons. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sambos and Uncle Toms. Right. Exactly. That that <laughs> you know, those that deliberately, consciously betray their people and our interests mm-hmm. and those that do it out of ignorance. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and I think that um the distinction is necessary. Yeah, because you got some folk, I, I will admit, you have some folks what they used to call uh, unconscious agents. Mm-hmm. They're not conscious that they're agents. Right. <laughs> so, oh, facts. They, they don't know. You know what I'm saying? They just, they operating the way things is and what was put in front of them. And it, it, they might be the most useful. You know what I'm saying? Those are the black folk that get the most funding. Mm-hmm. You know but what I'm yeah, saying? The most the, funding. The most support, the most white institutional support in this society, the most white media attention. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Those unconscious agents. But so, see, so if you see a black person with a whole lot of white media support, I would say you should be suspicious. Follow the money. <laughs> I mean, I, I and it's even using that analogy on uh, the the two groups, black politicians. I won't say all, but the ones we've been getting, they normally um, function in the capacity of misdirecting our political power. Mm-hmm. Um, they will never direct our political power towards black power. Mm-hmm. Because their white masters wouldn't allow it. Yeah. And, and just to, just so we can close it out real quick, I'm also seeing unconsciously you see a lot of black celebrities go about a worship of black aesthetics. Yeah. You know, to replace radical or revolutionary politics. The black the black celebrity he mm-hmm. comes in because he's he's the tool that's used. Mm-hmm. He's used by the black politicians, which is used by the system, mm-hmm. which is all used by the system. To then bring and swoo and misdirect the everyday people. Because mm-hmm. some most cases, this black celebrity, his class interest, even if he come from the same hood, he come from the niggas. Mm-hmm. His class interest is no longer the same class interest as them. Right. So his class interest leads him, even if he has a nationalist feeling. His class interest says, oh, I'm going to build some capitalist businesses in the black community. There you go. You know what I'm saying? Where a different class interest, if a, a black working class revolutionary class interest was preserved, yeah, uh, then you would see different actions. You would see the funding of black grassroots organizations. You would see the funding of black cooperative businesses yeah. that the black community can own and operate to its own benefit. You would see uh, these rich black motherfuckers give they millions and billions to the effort of uh, uh, black land cooperatives. I Imagine keep, that. Imagine all the, all these black millionaires. How many uh, black land cooperatives do we got? That's a, that's 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 to make a real quick comparison. And you're right, because it ain't many. Mm. Let's make a real quick comparison, right? Let's take a Cicely Tyson, mm-hmm. uh, um, a Sam Cooke. Mm. Um, Our young viewers is like, hold on. Yeah, these are some old folks. You got y'all got to start doing y'all research. Um, Sam Cooke, one of the best singers of all time. Mm-hmm. Believe me, you go ask your grandmama. She know who Sam Cooke is. Involved in the struggle as an artist. Yeah. Um, Cicely Tyson, you've seen that sister in plenty of movies. She still be in Tyler Perry movies. Chocolate sister, elder. She used to be fine back in the day. You need to check her out. Mm-hmm. Um, she's still a beautiful lady too. Um, and uh, many other 
um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali, compare those celebrities. Do you think they would say the shit that Trina and Lil Wayne said today? Nope. They don't recognize that. You know what I'm saying? They don't record for that. You know what I'm saying? That's already history. So what's the difference between then and now? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the difference now is we're getting individualist solutions from this black media, black middle class leadership class, misleadership class. We're getting individualist solutions to these communal problems that have a colonial origin and framework. I right? would say self-interested. Mm, that too. Self-interested, right? They self-interested because mm-hmm. it's like this. The system pays its cronies they wouldn't be doing it if they wasn't getting paid mm-hmm. and so I'm gonna encourage black people I need black people to vote for this person because of the tax breaks that he gonna give to the wealthy or the business loans he gonna give out and then after they already then came because it's based on their class interest. Sometimes that's an unconscious thing. Mm. Okay, I'm going to put it to you like this. Why don't the black misleadership class, media, politicians, athletes, all of them, you know, why don't, why don't they give us viable solutions to black-on-black crime? Just to bring it back to black-on-black crime. Mm-hmm. It's because black death sells True. in this system. True. Black death sells. True. Black death is profitable. So, of course, you know, they're not going to portray that class interest. You know what I'm saying? And and often, through their re-socialization in these elite spheres, you know, they're out of touch. Like we off, like like we yeah. see with Trina, like we see with Lil Wayne and uh, and others. You know, we, we talked about T.I. and Killer Mike in, in Atlanta before. Yeah. While they didn't, you know, use black-on-black crime to excuse, to, to try to deflect from uh, the killing of uh, the brother there mm-hmm. and the situation going on there, um, you know, they definitely engaged in some black liberal, yeah. uh, black capitalist type politics, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that, that kind of goes back to uh, a term I like, I, I want to bring on to the show. What's that? The Wakandification. <laughs> the, you know the the Wakandification of uh, of our liberation our, of our liber, liberatory aesthetics mm-hmm. of our revolutionary aesthetics yeah. and in our actual culture, right? Yeah. So I've I've seen this term applied one to you know the critique of Ti mm-hmm. when he spoke to Atlanta mm-hmm. on TV no, and, and said you know uh, you know no don't don't raise up you know don't don't mm-hmm. destroy the CNN building. You know, this is Wakanda. This is Wakanda. You know what I'm saying? So, and then we all, I've also seen that term apply recently to Beyonce and kind of how she appropriates some, you know, various African uh, aesthetics, African ethnic aesthetics and and, and cultural symbols to to try to, uh, you know, I guess homogenize them in a way that's profitable, you know what I'm saying, but not revolutionary uh, in a way that, you know, you know, they need to be, you know. I say we in this in this segment with this with this right here. Blackness is revolutionary, or it's mm. nothing. Yeah, we got to use our culture and use our cultural institutions, use all of our institutions, and use all of our effort. You know what I'm saying? And focus it within to address the problems of black on black crime and how we harm each other. 
Because if we don't do that, if we don't become united through our, through our own effort, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's going to be no good. So, uh, yeah, we got to do it for self, self-determination. To the fullest, to the fullest. Well, people, we're going to take a little break. But again, we want you to support and share and engage with us on Fire This Time IG and Twitter. Search for Fire This Time podcast on Facebook. You will find us. And um, when we come back, we're going to get into a little, you know, talking about the great brother Kwame Torre, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael. Free the land. Free the land. Because a people must know their national interest. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Peace, peace, peace. Welcome back to Fire This Time, episode five. You know, we're going to get into now, you know, the man of honor today, you know, the great Kwame Toure, who my co host, you know, gets his namesake, you know, um, great. Um, revolutionary African nationalist uh, Revolutionary black nationalist Organizer uh, For our people um, You know him better as Stokely Carmichael um, Probably f- for me He's probably the last Great organizer That we had with us From the elder times that passed The, the giants of that era Uh what about you, Sonny? What you think about? What you know about Big Sonny? I mean, Big Torre. Man, like you, <laughs> Big Torre. Big Torre. I get Moji name. Like you said, bro, uh, greatly affected me, man. When I first, when I first kind of interacted with him, his ideology, how he spoke, his speeches. I mean, as you can imagine, it greatly affected me. Uh, I, I was introduced to him, kind of when I first entered grad school. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I. Grew up with with much recognition of who he was. I might have seen his image a few times. I definitely heard the slogan "Black Power," and we're gonna get into that later. But um, it wasn't until I got to grad school, so we talking like 2014, 2013, to where I really began to uh, encounter Stokely or Kwame Ture. And um, yeah, his speaking style, his his commitment to organization, his commitment to African culture his celebration of African culture as mm-hmm. well. And, um, you know, and so many other things. And just, you know, his his sacrifice for his people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? His willingness to be tortured for his people. His willingness to, you know, commit himself over a lifetime, you know, daily to the struggle for his people. Yeah. And, um, you know... The fact that, you know, he got the woman of his dreams. <laughs> Miriam Mugabe. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we'll talk about that. You know what I'm saying? I, I have read, uh, you know, also real quick, we're going to mention, if you're interested in, in reading about Kwame Ture's life, 
uh, I recommend you pick up Ready for Revolution. That's the autobiography of his life. Uh, make sure you pick up that book. Where, where, where? You know, so um, yeah, go go ahead and kick us off, Aki. I don't know if you uh, you got a timeline over there or how you want to kick yeah, off this gonna... this uh, this. Uh... I mean, well, I say this before I get in there. I got to tell you my experience of how I got turned on. Oh, bro, go ahead. Kwame Touré. Let's get it. You know, um, I sort of came up on Kwame Touré late too. Um, the the the. The, the the way I was getting introduced to this movement, he wasn't one of the main names mentioned, you know. Um, once I started dealing in the revolutionary side of the movement, I, I, I still was, it seemed like he was at a distance from me because he I always heard him in reference to SNCC. And I never heard him as Kwame Touré. I was always hearing him as Stokely Carmichael. And I'm thinking Kwame Touré was somebody different, mm -hmm. you know. But I wasn't investigating who Kwame Touré was. And then when I really started studying uh, Pan-Africanism, Pan-African nationalism, I started getting into that. Then I started to see who he was because I started researching, um, you know, some of the great revolutionaries of um, the time of the African liberation movement, you know. And so... Um, very significant, great speaker. You know, people got to remember that this brother was a college-educated man. He could have just went and been a professor at some damn university mm -hmm. and chilled if he wanted to, you know. Uh, he dedicated damn near 30 to 50, well, probably more than that. He was 30, 30 years as a uh, Pan-African nationalist. And, you, yeah, you know, he practiced. He's like, he got over 50 years' worth of dedication to the movement. You can't beat that shit. <laughs> no matter how you cut it you can't beat that but that's how I got turned on to Stoke Lee was a very intelligent man he contributed um, very much to um, ideology and out of all things he he was a hell of an organizer if we go into the, some of the details of what he organized and how he did it in the times that he did it in the places that he did it not too many people could do that but um, just to uh, you know uh Give a little quick timeline, you know, on um, old Stokely. You know, Stokely was uh, born in, on June 29th, 1941. Uh, he was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, you know. He was born over there. You know, he came here. That's what's up. Uh, 1952, he was, you know, reunited with his parents, you know, um, and he moved to New York to live with his parents. So his parents must have relocated to New York and he moved up there with them. Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing right there. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, so he, he's staying in a strong tradition, right? In New York. As far as, uh, you know, Caribbean, uh, black Caribbean intellectuals, activists, organizers, you know what I'm saying, that contributed heavily to the struggle. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, he, he stands heavily in that tradition. True indeed. Um... Next, we got in June 4th, 1961, he participated in the Freedom Rides. And anybody who don't know anything about the Freedom Rides, that was a serious thing right there, you know, um, where they was taking a ride from ja from New Orleans to J uh, Jackson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they was getting hit with rocks, you know, all types of things, harassed by white folks. Um, he even went to jail, I think, at that one right there. Um, that was a very important time in the struggle coming up, you know, for us right there. Um, 1966, May 1st, he starts to get an activism. He ain't cool. He in school now. He didn't hit, you know, uh, thinking high school. He started to get involved with SNCC. 
you know, 1966, he became the chairman of SNCC. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let me get in here right quick. Go I ahead. Can, yeah, you the expert. I mean, you the uh, you know for this portion of Kwame Ture's life, he's still Stokely at this at this time. Yeah. You know, so for Stokely, I think him becoming the chairman of SNCC is really uh, a pivotal moment for the our social movement history. You know, as as new Africans, yes, because it it symbolizes uh, a significant change. And, and, and ideology in the, the guiding ideology of uh, the popular movement mm-hmm. right where before the more liberal integrationism of Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or uh, you know or let's keep it focused on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee within yeah. SNCC uh, this liberal integrationist tradition is represented by John Lewis yeah we all know John Lewis yeah we all know John Lewis so John Lewis and Stokely Carmichael are uh, competing, you know what I'm saying, somewhat ideologically within the organization as far as which direction to go, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see early on the creeping influence of black nationalism yeah. into what traditionally was a civil rights struggle mm-hmm. since the mid-50s yes. was, uh, you know, more integrationist focus while still being very militant, yes. right? So uh, how, how does this black nationalism creep in? Right. Well, you see it uh, come through multiple uh, uh, vehicles. Right. Mm-hmm. We have Robert F. Williams. You know, what yep. I'm saying, go on, go on and tell the people about Robert F. Williams. Robert F. Williams is a noble brother from North Carolina. He's one of the founding patriarchs um, in the line of our um, ancestry in the New African Independence Movement. He represents the principle of self defense. Mm-hmm. And Robert F. Williams, including his wife, Mabel F. Williams, and I will tell you to Google it, you'll see one of the most gangsterish pictures in this world, a black man and his wife sitting there with two pistols. These two brothers, though this brother and this sister, they were into the movement strong enough where they had to flee this country. They lived in China for a while. They lived in Cuba for a while. Mm-hmm. He had a newspaper called The Crusader. You can't go on the Internet and find The Crusader. You need to mm-hmm. look it up. So let, let, let's dig into what they was doing in, in, in North Carolina. In North Carolina, they got famous because Robert F. Williams said that he wasn't going to let just white folks come in and do their thing to them. Mm-hmm. It was a situation that took place in North Carolina with a brother, um, a court case. He was also, let me say this, he was also a member of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And he was at the time of the radical wing of the NAACP. About as radical as it got at that time. Yeah, definitely as radical as they got because he didn't believe in the peaceful protest or uh, the peaceful means. He believed that the black man had the right to defend himself, Mm -hmm. you know, from uh, racist terror. Mm -hmm. And he believed in standing up and doing it. And at the time, Martin Luther King was in the NAACP, but he was uh, younger. He He was in the younger wing. No, he went to the bars, right? Yeah. He went to the saloons where the brothers was at, where the working class brothers was at. And veterans. And, and also uh, his peer veterans, right? And he organized them. You know, and, and uh, they came with a more working class uh, political ethic, you yeah. know, undergirding their politics. So what did he lead them to do? When the KKK was coming through the black community there... And convoys terrorizing the black community or straight up just harming, uh, uh, putting violence on uh, black uh, people in the community. What did he organize people to do? Rifle clubs. Rifle clubs. So next time the convoy comes, we shooting. 
Yeah. Through his military training, too, he was teaching those brothers through that rifle club how to defend territory, how to defend homes, how to defend um, bases mm-hmm. and things of that such now, nature. Now, Aki, was he doing this in the Black Liberation Army? What organization was he doing this in again? This was the NAACP. He was doing this within the NAACP. Now, it led to his uh, <laughs> dismissal from the NAACP, but um, he was there and he was willing to do it. You know, I ain't got the quote in front of me. I regret not having the quote in front of me. But what did he say? He said we're gonna meet violence with violence. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that and that's and a quote to that effect is what got him essentially kicked out of the NAACP. And good- uh, because you know they were still on the nonviolent stuff. But let's keep it going, Aki. Robert F. Williams. We took this tangent because it's important enough for you to get this history if you don't know it yet. It's another tangent that we got to take. Go ahead. He was the the. The SNCC movement was also black powerized by RAM. There you go. The Revolutionary Action Movement, um, which was one of our parent ancestor groups uh, in the New African Independence Movement. Um, The Revolutionary Action Movement, based on um, the works of uh, Muhammad Ahmed, um, they actually planned that to go and revolutionize SNCC. You know? They they planned that, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it wasn't just a straight takeover. It was interjecting those type of politics into the conversation, and letting the individual members in there choose. And those individual members in there, if you presented them like in the Nation Islam with the clear water or the dark water, the person's going to choose the clear water. It was mm-hmm. simple. It was the most purest way to them. And so that that was a process that was taking place on different levels. You know, from Robert F. Williams, him hearing Robert F. Williams and siding with Robert F. Williams, hitting, and that information of Robert F. Williams, it was brought in through RAM. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to see how he was important in the time when our movement was making that revolutionary step. Mm-hmm. That step into the revolutionary movement. That was a very important changing point with him and Snick, mm-hmm. you know. Also, a large effect at this time. I love everything you said about Ram. Much needed. We got to talk about our brother Malcolm X. True indeed. Malcolm X is also influencing the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the early '60s, right? Mm-hmm. How's he doing that? I mean, of course, through his lectures and and, and his politics in general, but also Stokely Carmichael at Howard University in 1961 took part in the planning of a, a debate between Malcolm X representing the black nationalist tradition and uh, Bayard Rustin representing the lib- more liberal integrationist uh, tradition while still having uh, somewhat anti-capitalist positions at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a story. That's a, a, another story. But anyways, it was at um, debates, at, at this Howard debate where Stokely Carmichael talks about in his autobiography um, the profound effect that Malcolm X had on him and uh, the fellow members of his organization at the time, mm-hmm. they went into the debate expecting Malcolm X to lose. <laughs> they were Bayer Rustin fans, <laughs> right? Him and his comrades at the time. So uh, you you know in 1961 that Stokely Carmichael is not yet a staunch black nationalist. Yeah, this is this you know what I'm saying. This influence does take time to come in. And, uh, you know, so you should read how Stokely Carmichael reacts to seeing Malcolm X debate Bayard Rustin and utterly defeat him. Destroy him. Destroy him. 
Straight up. You can find that, can't you? You can find that on YouTube. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Sh- I think I've seen the very rust in YouTube. I think I've seen that on YouTube. Check it out. Google it. If you it. can't find the footage, you might be able to find the audio. Right. It's worth listening to. Right. And there's a lot of writing about the debate as well. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, it's it, it's a pivotal moment. It, you know, if we accept Stokely Carmichael as a pivotal actor within our tradition, mm-hmm. you know, this is definitely a pivotal moment of uh, the tradition and the history, right? So, uh, you know, stemming from this, you know, this black nationalist influence, you know, we see Stokely become the chairman of SNCC. You see Stokely and SNCC become involved in the development of uh, independent black political institutions that seek our self-determination first in Mississippi through the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, working with... uh, Historical figures like Fannie Lou Hamer. You gotta mention Fannie. You gotta mention Fannie Lou Hamer, who was also uh, working closely with Malcolm, Malcolm X, X before Malcolm X's death. You should also look up uh, Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer speaking together. I believe they might have spoke together in the Audubon Ballroom uh, a, a few weeks together before Malcolm X's assassination. There's audio in it? There's an audio of Malcolm X introducing Fannie Lou Hamer at, uh, during the OAAU meeting. Do they got the footage of her speaking? There's no, uh, there's no footage of her speaking. There might be. Oh, there's, there's some audio of her speaking, though. I believe there is some oh, audio of her speaking. So, I know that so, was real. Exactly. So, so these are some of the the, the connections that aren't sp- spoken about as much. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So um, you see Stokely Carmichael working with Fannie Lou Hamer. You know what I'm saying? In yeah. in the years after Malcolm X's death. So you and you see t- them taking a much more pronounced black nationalist turn, a more radical stance. Exactly. A more Black uh, revolutionary black nationalist stance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely one that would get that, that that a firm step in that direction. You know, a transformative step in that yeah. direction. So, um, y- you know, after well, we had to mention somewhat the con- the Democratic Convention of 1964. Yeah. To uh, um, to uh, and it was at this event where the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party seeking um, some. Uh, representation for their legitimate political party, uh, independent political uh, uh, caucus that they uh, organized. Yes. And uh, this was actually organized uh, democratically and was multiracial in a way that the official Mississippi Democratic Party certainly was not. Was not. Uh, the Mississippi Democratic Party was an illegal party mm-hmm. by all accounts, even by official accounts, as far as what they engaged in. Um, uh, and, and barring the vote and, and, and other uh, type of oppressions on the black community, mm-hmm. oppressing their political power. So um, you see here, again, the um, black nationalism coming into confrontation with black liberalism and black integrationism. Yeah. Stokely Carmichael and Fannie Lou Hamer stand in opposition to who? Baird Rustin, Dr. King, the Democratic Party at this 1964 convention. Yes. Right. The Democratic Party offers Stokely, Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party um, just as symbolic for all their hard work and years of organizing. The Democratic Party, official Democratic Party, offered them only a symbolic non-voting representation, yeah. which was a slap in the face. Right. Mm-hmm. Dr. King, Baird Rustin. And the Democratic Party begged Fannie Lou Hamer, Stokely, and them to take the deal. And they didn't. Yep. They did not. And that's a credit to them. That's a credit to Fannie Lou Hamer and Stokely, and, and Stokely Carmichael and SNCC 
in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that they stood against the black liberals at that moment. And we're not taught about that. We don't learn about that, even though this is pivotal for our tradition, black nationalist tradition. It's, it's, it's beautiful that you mentioned the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party because you recall what the symbol for them was. Well, the symbol for the Black Panther, the Black Panther was a symbol for the, the Lowndes County. Mm-hmm. That, uh, wasn't that in Alabama? That or? was in Alabama. Yeah. They were connected to them. Okay. So the, the, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party took on the Black Panther as well, you're saying? No, what I'm saying is this, that they... The process that they were doing in Mississippi was the same process they was doing in Alabama. Oh, 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 of course. It was a continued, yes, yeah. yes, yes. The process in Alabama was a little different, different, because you had a large, what they would say, illiterate community there mm-hmm. who could not read and write, and that's when they was doing the things with the signs and the symbols. So the white, the symbol for the white Democratic Party was a chicken. Mm-hmm. The one for the um, in Alabama for the black folk was a panther. Right. But that's also a connection to Ram, too. Mm. Because Ram made connections with them and asked them, this is how the first Black Panther Party started, which was a network between California, New York, Chicago, Alabama, and Mississippi. It wasn't an organization yet. Or a, or a party. Or a party yet. It didn't become a party until a branch in Oakland started the Black Panther Party of self-defense mm-hmm. in Oakland. Okay. The other branch was started by Muhammad Ahmed, um, Stokely Carmichael. All of these men, they actually met each other mm-hmm. and had an agreement. Car- um, Muhammad Ahmed, if you read Muhammad, matter of fact, you got the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also mentions this in his works, um, Revolutionary Black Nationalism, Tenants on Revolutionary Black Nationalism, where he talks about how the Black Panther Party was formed. It was a loose coalition of people who believed in black nationalism, and they had different sections in different places. Mm-hmm. It eventually turned into the actual Black Panther Party that we knew from 1966 mm-hmm. that moved around. Well, yeah, I mean, Stokely Carmichael's election in 1966 as the chairman of SNCC is a, a, a victory for black nationalism within mm. SNCC over black integrationism. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I think, yeah, by 66, that turn is made. And by 69, it, you're right, it takes on an even more revolutionary and pan-African uh, uh, stance. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, uh, by this time, he's changed his name yep. to Kwame Ture. He's gotten involved with Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Seko Ture and Guinea-Bissau, uh, two revolutionary African leaders of those yeah. respective countries. And, um, yeah, his, his politics uh, definitely become more pan-African at this moment. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's all pan-African mm-hmm. at that moment. You know, 69, he sort of went into a self-exile. I've heard many different versions of that. I don't know if you heard anything about why he left, but I, I, I know I was hearing that they were, they were doing him like a lot of other um, revolutionaries. They were, you know, threatening his parents and things of that such nature. Um, he left, he went to Africa, you know. Matter of fact, it was in this time that he married Marion Bakiba. Mm-hmm. Um he hung out and, and became friends and comrades with some of the greatest uh, revolutionary African nationalists on the continent, Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah and Seke Toure, um, who were um, founders of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, he was actually a member, 
one of the, not a founding member of that Kwame Ture, but he was a member of it. They always had him listed as an organizer. He was never a big man to boast on himself or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Some people considered him to be the leader of it, but he was not. Um, he also helped in the establishment of African Liberation Day which is something that's a holiday that's celebrated globally around the world now for Africans celebrating their liberation from the colonial powers of Europe and Pan-Africanism. Um, in Africa, he had a period, he had a period of isolation over there, maybe about five years. I guess that's because he was helping building the party. But then as the party started, the All African People's Party started setting up branches in different places, he became like a spokesperson for them. Mm-hmm. You know, by this time, Nkrumah had passed. Mm-hmm. I take that back. Assassinated, mm-hmm. it's my opinion. And um, he had sort of became the spokesperson for that. And so he was going around the world. He was coming to America and things of that such nature, mm-hmm. speaking at certain African Liberation Days. Yeah, I mean, th- and, and, and in that way, he stayed connected to the movement, right? Yeah. I mean, because he, 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 after that period of isolation that you refer to, I, I don't know exactly how long it was, mm-hmm. but he made yearly trips, you yeah. know what I'm saying, to this country, going on speaking tours. He actually mm-hmm. came to the University of Illinois at one point wow. and spoke. Uh, I, I think there might be footage of that. Um, but yeah, he, he he's he he went to universities all over the country. Probably one of his most famous speeches right now, like uh, what raising the consciousness to the uh, raising. Uh, yeah, it's uh, converting the uh, unconscious to conscious. That's I, that was done in a university here. Yeah. One of his trips here. That yeah. was sort of towards the end mm-hmm. of his journey. Um, you know, he was a great stalwart, especially in African nationalism, Black nationalism. He has a long, straight, and long history. So, and and, and let's not forget this too. Uh, you know, this is a man that during the march through the South uh, helped inaugurate the term black power oh, yeah. into we, our politics. I forget and, that, Aki. I forgot all exactly. about that. And into our culture, right? So, um, popularized it. Popularized it, right. And of course, that was in conjunction with Willie Ricks, and they were both operating as members of SNCC. Yep. You know, uh, and they were leveraging the organizing work they've done in the South for years by that point. Years. Right. So, um, yeah, Black Power pops off, and, um, you know, it, it really brings the conversation to, you know, the important differences that they laid out between black power and black integrationism or liberalism yeah. in the sense that, you know, what do we talk about all the time? We need our own institutions. We need our own power base. Mm-hmm. We need to control the reins of our destinies politically, economically, educationally, and so on and so forth. Yes. Uh, that's what black power is led up by Kwame Ture meant. Yeah. And uh, the, the power to c- control our destiny, autonomy. And, um, you know, there's a big difference between that and civil rights within just the u.s context the u.s national context civil rights within this country Mm -hmm. and uh that that's a totally different conversation you know what i'm saying so i I think the conversation is also needed between what's the difference between black power as an ideology as you know kind of developed by the revolutionary black nationalists in SNCC, um that strand of it compared to black lives matter <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and um, what what that as a as a political call, as a political, you know, some say movement, some say moment. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. Where do you, how do you contrast those two, Aki? 
I, uh, ideologically, well, black power ideologically is completely different. Black power advocates for black people having power for themselves. That means black people having self-governance, um, governing themselves politically, economically, socially. You know, uh, black power was not asking to be with the system. Black power was saying, we want our own system. Like, I mean, Black Lives Matter is asking for Black Lives Matter Black lives to matter within this system somewhat, within right? Within this system, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think black power black power is a recognition that black lives will never matter within this system. We have to build yeah. our own system. We have yeah. to invest within our own system, our own society, mm-hmm. our own community that's going to, and institutions that will replace these institutions and society that will never value our lives. Go ahead, Aki. I was just going to say that you have many people that that's what they do. They mistake black power for um, black capitalism. Mm-hmm. They mistake it. They feel they have black power if they have capitalism, if they have the money, if they have the wealth. And that we see that rampant in our community today. That was an idea that was pushed on us. That was It's rampant in our community today. But black capitalism was being pushed on us back at this same time period in the 60s. Mm-hmm. That's when it first started being pushed on us as an alternative to black power. So if we think in the sense of comparing it to Black Lives Matter, the politics of today involves us as a people having to operate under some form of black power to get through this. Um, If you're coming with the same, if they're coming, Black Lives Matter or any other group with the same liberal integrationist politics in today's time which Kwame which Kwame Torre spoke of even in the last years of his life he spoke about this you know um, we in bad shape you know we in bad shape if we if we follow in those those type of principles you know um, that's what made Kwame and Krumah so uh, talented his organizing skills. He didn't just have the ability to mobilize people. He could mobilize them and organize them in a way, you know, that was, um, you know, effective, you know. Um, and he had solid ideology and understanding mm-hmm. that was given to him from his own personal studies, from former revolutionaries and activists, but also through his studies of the current people at that time, like Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Toure, who was doing a ton of writing at the time, you know. So, Aki, let's let, let's bring the conversation around because there's only so much of Kwame Toure's life and legacy we, we're going to be able to capture, you know, in one podcast segment. But let, you know, let, let's just consider the question or the or the idea. You know, what I'm saying, what would Kwame Toure? And, you know, his concept of black power, his concept of pan-Africanism, revolutionary pan-Africanism, what would he have to say? What would he what would he prescribe to us on the subject of black on black crime? On black on black crime. Well, I think he would explain the same thing. He would speak according to the organization, organizing black people around that Pacific cause, organizing around that Pacific cause, setting up the institutional means by organizing to address that cause and going head on into the cause. Mm-hmm. He was a very direct person. Now, he liked theory and he liked ideology and stuff like that, but he was also a man of action. He wanted to get it on and get it popping. 
you know. So he, I know I know three words he would say right off the bat. <laughs> organize, organize, organize. Exactly. So I think he would. I think Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, he would tell all those people that's out there marching, mm-hmm. all those young black people. That are out there marching for the first time Or maybe for the second or third time If they march back in 2015, 2016 mm-hmm. He would tell all of them to get organized Get involved in an organization Not no online community There you go We're talking about a, a political organization, right? And uh, that political organization It cannot be tied to the liberal integrationism Of these organizations and leaders that have misled us for too long for too long you know it, it has to be ideologically tied to revolutionary revolutionary pan-africanism revolutionary pan-african nationalism whatever word salad you want to throw on top of it for our politics you know it, it has to represent though that type of ideology mm-hmm. right so um you, so yeah I, I think that if the if if that mass of people got organized, you know, in those type of organizations, you know what I'm saying, we would see the change that we want to see. Mm-hmm. It would come about rather quickly, you know what I'm saying? But that speaks to the need of a cultural transformation that leads our people there. And that speaks to the need of us that are conscious in this moment. That goes back to what Kwame Ture said. Yeah. It's the responsibility of the conscious to convert the unconscious to conscious. We had to do that by what did Malcolm say? By any means necessary. Any means necessary. You know what I'm saying? Damn. So, so that's politically and culturally, socially. You know what I'm saying? So we have to get, we have to dig in deep on all these levels to push our people to accept the urgency of organization mm-hmm. along revolutionary lines. You know what I'm saying? Because too uh, often we try to organize in a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. We, no, it has to be at all times. We, that's the urgency of it, right? Mm-hmm. We have to we have to push the urgency at all times, not just when somebody's killed, not just when you can uh, leverage a protest picture, or you know what I'm saying a speech or something like that for some type of gain. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like we need you if you're listening and you're not involved in the type mm-hmm. of organizations we're talking about. We need you involved on a daily, weekly basis in the rebuilding and the recreation of our new African communities. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying. In a way that we can have the institutions that can address the needs of our children and our young people and our families. Yes. In a way that uh, we will not commit this violence against each other. You know, I think Stokely Carmichael, he would, you know, he wouldn't say that, you know, black on black crime is a myth. <laughs> you know At all. He, he would say that it's of profound importance that we get on the ground and organize and address these problems head on. Because uh, it's our lack of unity and our lack of organization, mass organization, that is having us so uh, crippled in our response to uh, police brutality. Yes. Uh, and, and why it's so sustained over centuries. Um, it's because, uh, you know, we haven't reached the, the level of unity yet needed, you know what I'm saying, to defeat it. And, the, and not just the unity, but the, the unity around revolutionary pan-african nationalist principles um so yeah um what about you aki anything you want to kind of send us off with i would i would say this that kwame nkrumah is definitely i mean not kwame nkrumah but kwame Ture. them names always get me with kwame Ture is um definitely a person worth looking up and researching um he has a rich history in the movement 
He's one of our ancestors. He is gone now. He died, uh, let's see, what did he die? He died, uh, what, November 15th, 1998? At 57. 57. He was one of the last ones we had from that era. We still got a few. But he was one of the last ones from that era, some of the giants that we had from back. And he organized and taught until he could not no more. Until he couldn't do it no more. So, you know, we, we you know, if, if people do it the old-fashioned way, you know, say some laches for him on your shrine. If not, pull out a little water for him in the backyard. You if, know. if you like me, you know what I'm saying, roll a little something up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Buy one for the brother, you know. We talking about incense, though. We talking about incense. incense. And some sage, you know. The, uh, the kush. <laughs> Come on, Lucky. They got kush incense. You ain't never had kush incense. Good incense. Oh, you talking about the one's name, Black King and yeah, hip-hop shit? Yeah, yeah, the kush. You gotta go with the kush, black stick. But, um, yeah, you know, that's what I would tell people. Research that brother, look him up. You know, Kwame Torre. Um, and some of the other names that we mentioned in here, especially Fannie Lou Hamer, too. She's worth definitely looking up because that's a strong black sister right there. She had her down for years. Mm-hmm. And years. We, we can't mention her and Robert F. Williams without mentioning Queen who? Queen Mother Moore. There you go. You got it, babe. See, that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother I show. But we're not about to cut in with this one, you know what I'm saying? But that's another name, you know what I'm saying? We're going to come back around. We mentioned her every few episodes. Yeah. Got her uh, in now. As far as episode five, we done, bro. That's it. That's all y'all get. Episode five, y'all. Thanks. Support the show. Share it with your people. Yeah, please do that. I'm finna cut out on y'all, but yeah, we need you to support. Share the show. You know, go to the uh, uh, the Twitter page. Check with us on Facebook, Instagram, know, Instagram, all of that. You know, leave a comment, make some suggestions about some shows you may want to hear or something you may want to do, a topic you want us to speak on, and we will listen and we will try to make that happen for you. Uh, peace. That's all that's it. Free the land. Free the land. We out. Out.